You're listening to a Wheels on the Ground production. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the Friday Disability After Dark feed, where we feature a bonus episode or something cool like that. And today, we are doing Palsy in the Pandemic, Episode 3, where I sit down with disabled thought leaders for a second season and talk about disability during the pandemic. And today, I'm really excited to sit down with my new friend, Savannah Lawrence, who is a public health student out of Boston, and we talk about their experience working in public health and also being somebody with a disability during the pandemic. And there's so much we talk about there. We talk about vaccine efficacy. We talk about access to vaccines for the disabled community. We talk about so many things. This this episode could have gone on for like five more hours. I really enjoyed sitting down with Savannah. I really enjoyed talking about disability in the pandemic from a public health perspective and from somebody who works in public health. We talk about a lack of disability data to find out the true effects of COVID on the disability community. There's so much that we chat about within this hour that I was really excited to have Savannah on. And I'm so excited for you to hear this third episode of Palsy in the Pandemic. Also want to remind you, if you want to be on a Palsy in the Pandemic episode with me, talking about your disability experience of the pandemic, we can do that. Send me an email using the subject line, Palsy in the Pandemic, and I will get back to you and we'll book you in for an episode. So, um, really, really excited for you to hear this one with Savannah Lawrence, and um, this is Palsy in the Pandemic, episode three, right now on the Disability After Dark feed. Savannah Lawrence, hello. Hi, great to talk to you. Hi, it's so nice to have you on Disability After Dark, and you're on our Palsy in the Pandemic, our third Palsy in the Pandemic episode. So yay, hello. Hi. <laughs> um, how's it going? How are you? It's going good. Um, it's kind of a hectic time for me because vaccination is going on. I'm finishing my graduate degree. You know, it's always coming. When it rains, it pours, and it's definitely pouring right now. Of but course. Going good. Good, good. Can you can you introduce yourself a little bit to the, to the Disability After Dark Palsy in the Pandemic audience? Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yep. So my name is Savannah. My pronouns are she, her, and I'm a graduate student at the Boston University School of Public Health, earning my master's degree in public health in epidemiology and biostatistics. I'm also doing some research in mental health, chronic conditions, and all of that jazz with the pandemic and with COVID. And I'm also um, a team lead in this very long titled organization, the Academic Public Health Volunteer Corps, which is part of the Department of Health in Massachusetts, where we work to support the local boards of health um, around the state. We work to support health equity and do all that kind of fun stuff. It's a pre-professional and professional organization for people like me that I've been working with for almost a year now. And it's been it's been really good. But yeah, I have my feelers out in a lot of different avenues right now. That's really cool. And I, I was in Boston uh, about a year and a half ago. I went, I was visiting Tufts University to do a, to do a, a talk there. Oh, um, nice. I'm sure you found how I, inaccessible Boston is. 
<laughs> yes, I did. It's quite inaccessible. The, it's the bad. lack of. It was. I was surprised at how bad it was. I was, you know, and I didn't realize it until I tried to get a cab from where I was to where I had to go, and they were like, "Why do you need one?" And I was like, "Cause I have to go to do a talk. Don't you have?" Like we're in, we're in like a big city in America. Don't you have like, don't you do cabs? And they're like, yeah, in in Boston, but you're in this neighborhood that isn't really part of Boston. We were in like, we were in like um, Amherst, which is, which is like connected to Boston. But if you're not from there, you don't know that they're not connected. You just think it's all connected. And so I remember calling this guy to get a cab, this, this like cab company. And the guy was so mad at me that I didn't know that Amherst, that like Amherst, and Boston were not connected. And I was like, uh, but aren't they? I'm not from here. Just help me out, please. That's ridiculous. They wouldn't like cross county lines, basically. <laughs> I mean, and I think eventually we found somebody who would, but it took like an extra hour of us just calling God. cab companies in the area. I mean, like, what do we do? How do we do this? Like, what is, what are the, <laughs> like, oh no. Cause, because I'm not, technically I was born in America, but I'm not. American is that I don't live there so mm-hmm. I couldn't use like my ADA status to get like a yeah get, like a bus or anything I couldn't mm-hmm. book like handy transit to get any of that stuff figured out yeah it was really annoying but we're not here to talk about my journey in Boston we're here to talk about you so <laughs> you also mentioned in your questionnaire that you live with some chronic conditions yourself can you do you feel comfy sharing those with us yeah, so I have the whole gamut. So my like main thing that um, my mom also has too is osteogenesis imperfecta type three four, which is a mixed type. Um, it's a chronic, it's a connective tissue disorder, um, like Ellers Danlos is. But for me, it means that my bones are not as strong as the average person's. Um, I'm shorter stature. Um, I have a lot of joint problems, and then I also have scoliosis and detonogenesis imperfecta. I have chronic migraines. Like I, I have a nice, a nice like you know, cocktail of fun things um, that I deal with. But for the most part, I'm mostly healthy most days, I would say. Um, but yeah. And how that's, and that's like a ton, there's, you do have a pretty sexy grab bag of things that you can <laughs> draw from there to be considered disabled. How have those disabilities and illnesses impacted your, impacted you during this pandemic? Um, I think it's made me a lot more just aware of like illness risks because there's a lot of things that I don't have to worry about that a lot of people do with um, more severe chronic conditions or uh, immunodeficiency, things like that. You know, there we were talking about this like towards the beginning of the pandemic is that a lot of the recommendations they were giving in like February and March were like to keep your hands washed. And that doesn't really work for someone who's a wheelchair user because you're right, you're touching something that's always contaminated. Oh, I know. And, it's really and things hard like to like... that. Yeah, and staying physically distance where that can be hard when you're talking to someone because it's even harder when you're a wheelchair user to hear someone because your head is like so much far below someone who's talking. So that becomes an issue. And so like that just made me very much aware of infection risk you know, as, as a public health student and knowing a lot about uh, infectious disease control, I know it, for, know it from that sort of academic medical standpoint, but as yeah. a person, like I'm so much more hyper aware. I'm someone who never considered myself a germaphobe, but now I like think about it so much more. And as with my current conditions, I don't know how much of an elevated risk I 
am. I don't know because there isn't good disability data. Well, there's really no disability data when it comes to COVID uh, cases and deaths. That data isn't either not collected at all or very sparingly. So knowing if I'm at higher risk, if people connect tissue disorders at higher risk, like that information is still not known. So I am in that weird space of like, I would logically think I might be more at an elevated like medium risk, but like, where's the data? We don't have it. So I think that's something that's really affected me too, is thinking about that, like not, not knowing where I stand, where someone with maybe um, spinal, cord, spinal cord injury, they know that they're elevated risk. Someone with cystic fibrosis, they know that, but that's something, that's knowledge we don't have yet. Yeah. And so because you have so many comorbidities and so many like different disabilities kind of wrapped up into one there, it, I can imagine it would be hard to, to, to get that data, but also it's kind of frustrating that we're in 2021 and we don't have data for people with multiple disabilities because as we well know there are people with one presenting disability who also have five other ones that are hidden that we don't know about so like I really wish that they that that they would look into COVID in terms of other how disability how multiple multiply disabled people play have have to deal with COVID in a different way yeah and I know this is data that we're going to collect eventually something that happens when you have an emerging disease is that a national and then an international surveillance system those are constructed but those take years to build and then decades to perfect we are still kind yep. of trying to perfect the tuberculosis um surveillance system in the u.s that is still pretty faulty there are issues especially in the united states because of the way states are kind of allowed to do things their own way there's a lot of difficulties with getting all the states on board to collect this data in the same way and do it accurately. So will this data get collected eventually? Yes, but we're sitting here waiting because we need to know about our own personal risk when it's not going to happen for a while, which is incredibly frustrating as an individual, but also someone who works in public health, knowing that this is something that every American needs to know and in Canada and any other country too, where it's not that information is just not collected yet. Yeah, and it's something I think because of ableism, we don't readily connect. Like in Canada, we're just collecting data on the fact that, like, it seems really simplistic to say, but we're just collecting data here about people of color being at higher risk for COVID. And it's like, well, that's not surprising to me, but it's also surprising that this is like a novel study that everyone's all of a sudden like coming out. It's like, oh yeah, poor people and people who are impoverished would be at higher risk for COVID. Like, wow, what a shocker. And it's like, well, that makes perfect sense to me. Why is this big news to you now? Like, and you know, now in, especially Toronto where I am, it's like the government has just said, like, if you work in, if you work in these, these racialized areas, you can get testing. And it's like, well, that came almost a year too late. Like the, the, this should have been done way sooner. Um, so I just, I, I think, I, I just think that, you know, disabled people are going to be left out in the cold again. And we, we've, we've felt this the whole year with the pandemic, but to know that there are people with multiple disabilities who won't know their true risk factor is kind of scary. It definitely is. Yeah. And I think, you know, you've got, what confuses us even more, right, is that, you know, there, for example, with cystic fibrosis, not every state in the U.S. has prioritized cystic fibrosis because those comorbidity priority lists have come from two things or come from data and kind of like medical logic, right? Because 
some people with these current conditions were not going out. They were told by their physicians in December or um, January or February to stay home. I know especially people with CF were told very early on before this was a thing that, yeah, you need to start staying home until we know what we're dealing with. So we don't actually have the data that they're elevated risk because they weren't getting sick. So if they're included on any of these priority lists, they're included because logically, because it's a, it's a progressive lung disease that they should be included, that they are at higher risk. But when you're someone like me who I've left, <laughs> I had like the dates um, like on my calendar, the two times I've left my house, my neighborhood in the past year, just twice. Wow. Um, Cause I, I don't need to, I'm very fortunate that my groceries can be delivered and so can my medications. And I have the internet and I work from home. So I'm incredibly lucky that I haven't had to leave, but I know that a lot of people do, especially disabled people do. And that's a whole, a whole other issue is, you know, trying to get off work and trying to get the right to work from home. If you are disabled, when there's no data that proves that you are in fact at higher risk, that's a whole, it's a whole other issue that comes from not having this information. Oh, wow. I never even thought about that. You're right though. Like if they have no data that you're at higher risk and they all they have is your word. Yep. Unfortunately, because we don't listen to disabled people, they are not gonna. They're not gonna give you that, um, nope. that work from home requirement, mm-hmm. which I never even thought about that till right now. So thank you for bringing it up. Uh, I wanted to ask you: in the last year of this pandemic, we have seen a huge rise in the number of times that ableism has been experienced within our communities. Um, it's just it's become so so rampant recently. Uh, over the last year for yourself, Savannah, have you had any experiences of ableism or any more acute experiences of ableism? And if so, can you share them with us? Me personally, not really. I think part of it is because for better or for worse, most of my friends are in in the health sciences and public health. So I think we're all kind of at an elevated awareness of like who is more at risk, who is not. Um, and I'm thankful that my grad program has enabled us to stay at home if we want to. Um, that is very lucky. Not every school has done that in the U.S. around the world. Um, but I'm very fortunate that my school has taken COVID seriously and has allowed us to stay home. But I see it on the Internet. I see, you know, I, I look a lot into Facebook comments and Instagram comics because, comments because I do public health communication work, so I want to know what, you know, take the pulse of what people are thinking, and I see a lot of people saying things like, you know, um, they have chronic conditions anyway, we need to be listing who died with COVID versus died of COVID, which is something that doesn't, it's not really a thing in medicine, um, and things like that, and just and also saying you know the people that are at higher risk should stay home and then we should open up society for the rest of everyone which again doesn't make sense because we don't know who has undiagnosed conditions especially in the U.S. when people avoid going to the doctor because of our high cost of medicine for the individual so those are the things that I notice and there hasn't been a lot with me but I see that constantly and it's hard not to internalize it because like I'm looking at it from a professional perspective of understanding where people are at but then also like take a step back and think well actually they're talking about me they're not just talking about yeah, this body of disabled you. people but they're they're also talking about about me and then like if I'm replying to these comments or interacting with these people do I sort of out myself as the type of person that they're saying is essentially okay to be at risk so that they can go live their lives or do I just not bring that up 
when I try to like dismantle this this ableism and I think there's just like such a misunderstanding of what it is to live with chronic conditions and that you know if if it were not for COVID so many people with severe chronic conditions would still be alive because their treatments are working they figured out how to live with it they manage it well but you can't manage a novel virus. You can't manage something that you can't see and you can't treat and you, before the vaccine, you couldn't prevent. That wasn't possible. So people are dying because of that. Not, not because they have chronic conditions, but because we had this thing that we had the ability to curtail, if not stop completely, and we didn't do it. And it's you know run rampant throughout North America and Europe and every, everywhere, really, m- most countries there's so much to unpack there like <laughs> you know there's so much to, just, yeah just that one segment like in that in that one says let's unpack that <laughs> i mean there's there's so much to like explore there about you know we didn't we're not necessarily dying of the chronic illnesses we're dying of the ableism as yep. a result of of people not doing stuff for us and so when you know you talked a second ago about wanting to out yourself um, as in this professional space when you do public health communications do you ever is there ever a platform where you're able to do that and like say like hey I have these multiple conditions person on Twitter but or do you feel (laughs) would do you feel safer in the under the guise of public health and not having to out yourself I mean so the work that I do is mostly things for like um making producing communication materials so adverts posters signs um social media things newsletters things like that so in that in that respect I'm not my my own voice isn't used because it's you know materials that multiple people made but when talking with colleagues I definitely bring it up because you know it most people in this sphere aren't either aware that they're working with disabled people or they're just they're just not because it is hard to be a physically disabled person with mobility impairments in this country to have that kind of job to get through multiple degrees and be hired and things like that so a lot of them are just not used to working with people like me and so I feel like I have a stronger voice than many other people do because I have the education but I also have that lived experience um and I will say that I've I believe this since I was a very young kid because I've always had um osteogenesis perfect I've always had chronic conditions that like I don't think that any one disabled person should have to fill the role of advocate I don't think that that's something that you should have to do I don't think that's your duty I think your duty is to like be alive and take care of yourself and put together the life that you want to live and I don't think advocacy should have to be a part of that I don't think you should have to martyr yourself either but I do find that when I when I can, when it's not like something that would impact my career or that would impact my mental health, just trying to like live my life, I do try to insert that and remind people that, you know, I am one of those vulnerable people that is really struggling during this pandemic, frustrated that rules are not being held in place, that we don't have greater restrictions for people because I am one of the people in this giant population we're constantly talking about, but we don't no one-on-one like this is my, my face is the one that you know you're talking to and I'm dealing with this that that you may not have the opportunity to talk about with other people yeah yeah are you did you, did you like did you want to did you did you have a passion to work in public health or was it 
something that you kind of stumble on your schooling? Was your disability a part of that? So it was actually up until junior year of high school. So my so 11th grade, I was dead set on going to art school. I wanted to be an animator. And my, my like full on dream was to make um, Finding Nemo 2 with Pixar. This was like, this is my plan for literally probably like 10 years of my life. And then I had this just like moment of really, really wanting to get into academia, starting to really fall in love with science. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to go to college for psych and then either be pre-med or pre-physician's assistant or go to nursing school or something like that. And then I stumbled on public health. I think a lot of people don't really know that like that's something specific you can study. And I didn't either until I was introduced to the department. And I talked to one of the faculty and I said, does doing psych and public health make sense? And she said, well, only one person has double majored, but yes, it's a great idea. And I just, I kept moving through it and getting more and more excited, but I definitely relate to my personal experiences of, um, you know, being a disabled person and getting treated by doctors and, and physical therapists who learn how to do healthcare from a book from data, but not necessarily knowing how to treat individuals with individual differences and knowing that we kind of do the same thing in public health a lot. We look at people, the population level and really ignore a lot of individual differences. And so I really take that with me thinking about, you know, this intervention, just like the hand washing thing, right? Like that is the best advice for the vast majority of people. But actually there's a portion of the population that that, that's not going to work for because you're touching your wheels and you may not even be able to reach a sink in a bathroom where you can reach the sink, but you can't reach the soap or you can't get to the hand dryer or you don't have the mobility to be able to wash your hands constantly. So I, that- well, the minute you wash your hands, you got to touch. And for me, it's what, I, I can't yep. do any of that. All, all that stuff is right. All that stuff is accurate for me. But then when you go to wash your hands, I then have to immediately touch my joystick. So what was the what point of washing my hands? Yeah. Like, what, yep. so why, why did I do that? So like, I think I remember seeing how like a year and a half ago when the pandemic started, which feels weird to say, but a year and a half ago when it started, <laughs> Um, I remember being really vigilant about washing my hands and slowly over time, I was like, oh, I guess I, I won't worry so much about that because like, I can't. So you just kind of let it fall the wayside. But yeah, I wish they had given more guidelines on what do you do if you're disabled and how do you wash your hands? Yep, it's just this this life experience of being told, you know, you do this thing and you will be healthier or you'll be safer and you keep saying, but that doesn't work for me. And that is like the crux of like, the, one of the biggest problems in public health is that we're constantly telling people to do something to fix their situation, but they don't have the resources or the knowledge of the tools or whatever. And so that was experiences going through the medical system as a child and as a teen. I bring that with me all the time because there are just so many, so many exceptions to these recommendations that just don't work. And that's, that's a, a big one of them is the COVID so, recommendations. You know, we've talked a lot about the hand washing. As somebody who works in public health and with disabilities, do you have any tips for people who can't wash their hands? Like, how do you do it if you can't do it? I mean, what I was doing was I would, when I would get home is I would wash my rooms too. And I was using hand sanitizers a lot more. I mean, my only tip is with all of these rules, whether it be washing your hands, wearing a mask, whatever it is, just do your best. Um, I don't think it should be an excuse that like, if you can't wear a mask, then you just go out maskless. I think we have to understand that, you know, we are 
not wearing a mask is a risk for ourselves and a risk for everyone around us. But I also think that like, you know, the new recommendation, at least here with the CDC is to wear a medical mask beneath a cloth mask. If that, if you can't do that for whatever reason, just wear one, you know, do your best. I think, I think we're, we're all been beaten down by being told to do things that we just can't do. So I think if anything, it just do your best recognize where your limitations are and don't like you realize that like washing your hands may not always make sense like just be aware of that and don't you're not gonna you're not personally responsible for the pandemic you're really not yeah I would 100% agree with that but I also think like you know if you're disabled and you know you're high risk like going I've heard people say oh I have and I, sometimes I've said when I've gone out without a mask, I've forgotten it for a second. All in my head, I'll be like, oh, I have disabilities. I can just say I'm disabled and that'll be fine. But it's like, no, don't, you can't do that. You have to be very like, if you can't wear a mask and you know you're high risk, don't go out. Like, and I, I know it sucks. And I know it's hard. Believe me, I've been in this, this room you're just seeing me in for the last like 15 months. Yep. It's hard. But like, it is. It, just, it is. It's so hard. Know. And I, And I think, you know, you want to use that. And I think what's, what's, what's unique about the situation that we haven't experienced is we're, we're the ones that usually have the greater health conditions and the greater risk. But now we're kind of a risk to each other of, of spreading the virus. And so to have to think about that when we haven't before is new and challenging too, to be aware of that. Although now we are apparently both vaccinated. So woohoo, I got my second yes, dose April 17th. And my mom was really fortunate that someone was able to come here to vaccinate her, I think a week ago. Um, so she's fully vaccinated or will be soon. So that's exciting. I got my first dose <laughs> at the point of this recording uh, two days ago. By the time you guys hear this, it'll be probably like a month or so out. But mm-hmm. I got my first dose and I'm very excited about it. I'm very also annoyed that in Canada, uh, we're doing this thing where we're four months after yep. the... So, you get the first dose and then four months later you get the second one which makes no sense to me but okay sure it makes it makes sense and in the way i explain it is in the beginning of last year we were kind of hoping like our best case scenario was like maybe like a 50 or 60 percent effective vaccine we shot that out of the water we got so lucky in that we were able to come up with multiple vaccines that are in the like upper 80s to the 90 95 percent effect effectiveness with one vet with one dose after two to three weeks to a month you're already at around 85 to 90 percent depending upon the vaccine effectiveness so you're already getting a lot of protection and in fact so much more protection than any of the flu vaccines have ever given us because those are usually between 40 and 50 percent efficacy in any given year because those are just yeah and that's something a lot of people don't know they think that they i think a lot of most people i think and even myself like i wouldn't say that because of my education i'm great at assessing risk because i'm i'm not my brain is not like a statistical computer um i can't calculate risk on the fly but people are really bad at understanding risk and so they think of they might think of a mask as being either 100% effective or not effective at all because you can still get COVID. They may think of the flu vaccine as being 100% effective or not effective at all because you can still get the flu. But medicine and risk mitigation don't work that way. It's, it's always on a spectrum. And so as far as delaying the second dose from a public health perspective at a population level, it makes a lot of sense because you're spreading out that immunity. 
we could have had a vaccine that was only like 80% effective and we would have been still over the moon happy at how effective it would be. So it makes sense, but I understand at an individual level, it's frustrating because you realize that you're very close to having an even more immunity and even less risk of getting the virus and then passing it on to other or having uh, ill effects for yourself. So like, I get why it's frustrating and scary, um, but I, it's, it, I think it may even be a strategy that we should have used in some areas of the U.S., especially where it's more rural. I think the Johnson Johnson vaccine is actually something that's really great because it's only one dose. So when we're bringing it to people's homes individually, it's a lot cheaper and a lot easier and faster to get people vaccinated. I don't know why we're not using it more in rural settings. I think there's a lot of strategical like mishaps where we're not thinking about using it in a clever way. But yeah, I think it, it basically it's complicated. And, you know, what works for the population does not always make an individual feel safe. And that's really frustrating. And I feel that. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think. I, that, and, but now hearing something that works in public health, tell mm-hmm. me the other side of things, I feel a little bit better. But like, up yeah. until you said that, I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. Like, why, why are my American friends getting it like three weeks out? And it just- Right. Felt- and, you know, we've been saying, you know, you have to get two doses- so then why do people say you have to get two doses, but you could wait on it? Like that doesn't make sense. And that's a failing of public health communication because that was fairly easy for me to explain. That's one of the easier com- concepts for me to explain. That's something that we could be telling people um, and we're not doing that. And that's that's a failure on our part and not on yours because that's not something you should have to be able to understand. It does seem scary. Like you're not, like you're like, you're having to ration medication like if someone if like someone told you okay you only get to have half of your medication for the next six weeks you would be scared because that's yeah <laughs> that would be that could be dangerous it could be fatal it could make you very ill like so i totally get why people are freaked out about that and not explaining that it's actually okay and is actually okay. in the long run you are going to be more protected because more people are vaccinated because of herd immunity and like getting more immunity into more people we're not explaining that and that's a failure on our part and not yeah I mean they they have explained it but they've done it in such a roundabout way that we're all just like what this doesn't make any sense and then when you see the like Biden's government's response to it and like the the American responses seems so much more robust where us in Canada especially us disabled folks in Canada who have been isolated since February 2020 like we're just like can we can I get the second dose can I, can I have it quicker like what and what else can wait can I get the second one first yeah and I was actually I was really lucky to get my appointment because for, for one thing like according to the the phase that we're actually in and the prioritized comorbidities I would have been in the final phase I would have been treated as just another uh, adult with at low risk but my clinic got doses and the physicians at the clinic were allowed to decide how to prioritize their own patients. This hasn't happened in every state and most people don't even know if it is happening in their state or if it's a possibility with their clinic. So it was a big surprise to me. I got a call on a Friday afternoon saying, we can give you the vaccine and we have some openings today and tomorrow, just pick a time. And that was like, man, that was like one of the the best pieces of news I've had in the past year. Like (laughs) I genuinely almost cried on the phone because as soon as I realized that this was not going away, I, I kept that in my head that, okay, well, a vaccine's gonna come out. And then when I realized how long it was gonna take, I kept in my head, well, it's gonna happen eventually. So having it happen earlier was great, but it was even more of a surprise because things had gotten so messed up in my state. I'm living in Rhode Island working remotely and they're prioritizing, or they were at the time prioritizing 
dose two. And so they were not scheduling a lot of dose one appointments. So I was shocked that I was able to get an appointment at all. But then that's another problem. Like, should you be making other people wait <laughs> by giving other people their second dose? So it's just, it's not, it, it's maybe more robust than what you guys are doing, but it may not be as robust as you think, especially across states, because every state has done it a little bit differently. And I wish that, I wish that in both Canada and the U.S., there because in Canada the provinces are are it's up to the provinces on how they want to roll it out. I wish yep. that they in Canada and the U.S. they would both say like "fuck you." We're gonna do a federal. There's a federal mandate. The provinces have no say. The f- federal government will decide on what is done, and here's what we're gonna do. Yeah, and I think there there needs to be some differences because there are gonna be de- different demographics in each province as far as risk factors and age and how rural um, and areas. I know that's a particularly a problem in Canada. It's a problem in the U.S. in some areas, but even more so in Canada when it comes to actually getting the vaccine to people, especially the ones that have to stay refrigerated at such a low temperature. But yeah. it should there should have been more of a federal coordination and more oversight and, and, and especially more standardization when it comes to comorbidities. That should have been more standardized. And what I, you know, we've been talking a lot about, like, we, as in, like, people who are disabled in public health, we've been talking a lot about, you know, why weren't disabled people prioritized? And my first thing is, who are we talking about when we say disabled people? Because are we talking about, like, literally everyone? Or, because we can't really do that. We still have to prioritize people and make a hierarchy. It sucks. But unfortunately, that's kind of the only way to do it. We really shouldn't have people who are, like, for example amputees and are perfectly healthy except for the fact that they're missing a limb and they have a great prosthetic and they never go to the doctor because they're very healthy they should not be prioritized in the same group as like someone with cf but it it is so much more complicated we can't just be having this list of like 10 comorbidities and that's it and i you know and there's there's so many intricacies like say that you did not have any chronic conditions that made your immunity any lower, but you have a carer. So you're already at an elevated risk because of that. But a lot of people are not understanding that and carers are not prioritized in many states in the US. They were in Massachusetts for a little bit of time, but then people were exploiting that system and lying. So then they had to take that away. And so that was a whole mess. And so I think like for right now, we need to be relying on, on people's doctors and primary care physicians more they know their patients there are still going to be people who are going to be left out who should be vaccinated that aren't and people who are getting vaccinated who could probably wait but having this concrete list it's not working it's not working because you had to wait so long because i had to wait so long because my mother had to wait so long we know that this system isn't working and i think there's a way to perfect it in the future but for right now not relying on doctors to know their own patients is like is maddening to me like we have this great resource that can help figure it out and we're not using it and why not yeah and i just wish that like you know in canada we started rolling out the vaccines in december 2020 and i didn't get mine until april 6th and yeah. like i was like you know what that's you know in those for those four months and the only reason that i got mine is because i pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and went on every website all, every day looking for appointments. And finally, my the 
care agency that does my care where I live says we're gonna have a clinic at, at your apartment. Do you want to do you want to get a shot? And I was like, of course I do. Like, tell me what it is. I'll be right there. No problem. But like, you know, it was so infuriating to not know when when you were gonna get a shot, where to go, to to even have to go outside. I've been lobbying. I went on the Toronto News the other day and said like, why do I have to go anywhere? I'm I'm really happy they're coming to my house, but disabled. Canadians should not have to go anywhere to get their shot. If the government of Ontario recently spent one point no three point seven million dollars on transportation to get seniors and disabled people to the vaccination sites, and I'm sitting there looking at that number, going, "You couldn't have spent a million on like in-home vaccinations. You couldn't have found a way to like. I know that the vaccines have to be temperature watched." But you couldn't have found a way with one of those one of those millions of dollars to make sure that like it was figured out. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and 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 you know when I when I when I first saw you talk about that on Twitter, I thought, well, it's probably cheaper. But I, as I think about it now, it probably isn't because you need vehicles that are accessible, which are so much more expensive than like a regular car, and you need the staff, the driver, or maybe an attendant there to get people on and off and to deal with the medical equipment that people may have. So that probably actually isn't cheaper. In Rhode Island, like I said, my mom got vaccinated at home and they used EMTs and their personal vehicles. So they're already trained. They didn't have to do any training for them. They could, they were able to fill a needle and stab it in someone's arm. Um, they could use their own vehicles. I'm assuming their uh, gas was compensated, but that's still gonna be cheaper than hiring these specialized vehicles especially when it comes to the johnson johnson vaccine that is one dose but also doesn't have to be refrigerated at such a cold temperature so you're right like why that is just a weird allocation of funds that like probably looked good on paper but if they like caught like uh done a price analysis and looked at both options they probably would have found that bringing you the vaccines was a hell of a lot cheaper and easier to organize and less risk because you're not going out and then, like, what's the cost of the medical system if, like, 5% of everyone that's brought to these facilities to get vaccinated then gets sick and has bad outcomes? Like Reactions, like, yeah. Yeah, it, like, when you, when, like, if the more I think about it, the more costly I realize it is. And, like, I'm not, I'm no economist, but, like, I could just, I, logically, it would be more expensive. And, you, unfortunately, when it comes to healthcare, the best way to think about is expense because often the best solutions really are the cheapest like what helps people the most and is most safe also tends to be the cheapest and that was not the cheapest solution it doesn't make no, sense when, at all when i remember when they put that on the news here in toronto and then like my a family member of mine knows one of the public health one of the not public health but knows the minister of health is secretary and so we were emailing them being like, well, this doesn't make sense. Like, what are you doing to prioritize disabled people? And they said, oh yeah, we're going to spend all this money. We're going to make this announcement to get disabled people to the vaccinations. And we just, we, like my whole family just shook our heads being like, well, this makes no sense. And then, and then miraculously the next day they were like, oh, there's going to be a vaccine next week and then we're going to come to your house. And I was like, mm, wow, interesting. <laughs> like, sure, I'll be there. But like, just the lack of forethought that went into... And the lack of like accessible thinking, if you were thinking accessibly, you would think, yeah, wouldn't it make sense to make to to make the people that you've told to stay home all year and not go anywhere? Like, doesn't that make more sense? Yeah. And like we had the thing is, is like 
phrase that we've been using a lot in public health a lot is we're we're building the plane as we fly it in terms of we're going through the pandemic at the same time we are trying to figure out how to do pandemic control because the last pandemic of this magnitude was 100 years ago and medicine has evolved and cities have become more industrialized everything has changed so we can kind of rely on what we knew from that but also not really but we had like 10 months to prepare for a mass vaccination so where were I mean, I, this is a rhetorical question, you know, the answer, but where were the disabled people at the table who are going to say, you know, we have to think about this population? The answer we know is if they weren't there or if they yeah. were, they were asked. And that, and that's, that's so frustrating because for, unfortunately, the able people probably didn't think of it, even though like the like biggest part of public health is looking at the most at-risk populations and figuring out how to make things work for, for them. Like that was clearly left out. And it, it just, it's so frustrating because this is one thing that we have plenty of time to think about and we weren't thinking about it. And we had so much time and we had like, I saw over the last year, so many think pieces from disabled people about the risk to them during the pandemic that I was like, if this is getting all, if this is getting so much traction on the internet and on all these places, like why isn't somebody from somewhere higher up clicking on this Facebook link and being like, oh, Maybe we should do something about this. I mean, I, I mean, honestly, like people and I, you know, I just, it's one of those, there are so many things on the back burner. And actually one of those things is an opinion piece about the lack of disability data that's collected and what that's going to mean for all of us in the future. Um, I need to finish that and submit it <laughs> to a journal soon. But, um, you know, we look at those headlines and maybe we'll read those articles and we think, yeah, this is important. And that's the last time we think about it. And that's kind of yeah. the, the problem with think pieces. I, I think they're important. Um, and I think they inspire. They're really the building blocks of inspiring future research, especially if you often it's scientists like myself who that research area isn't that's not my research area. But I'm putting kind of putting the idea out there to hope that other people whose area that is will research it and think about it. But often it just it, it stops it oh that's a problem we should we should deal with that so that's often yeah. where the the thought begins and ends unfortunately and it's I don't know I don't know what the solution is to make opinion pieces more powerful because I think I think they are like in in, in a vacuum they're very powerful because it's often people um like us who are um both educated and living those experiences right now it's often us that are thinking about these things and writing about them to to kind of like the powers that be but like I don't know how to make them more powerful that people actually go beyond let's do something about it then they actually go and do something about it like I don't I don't yeah. know what the solution to that is I mean I just think we need more of them and we need different voices sharing them and I can see the shadow of your cat from where you're sitting and that's <laughs> uh... you know that that one is mine he is uh his name is Legolas and he is very large and my mom has another one Nicodemus and I'm very worried because he's the one that will just like tear through the house and often I'll be in the middle of a call sometimes leading a meeting and he'll just like lay on top of me which is very distracting so it's gone well so far but <laughs> I'm su super hoping that he does it right now during our during our recording that would be super <laughs> great I'm 100% okay with that happening um we, we do have my pet Ron the Rona who is my little COVID um microbe plush oh that I got that's Christmas. awesome with a mask which i realize doesn't make sense but that's okay and now he's wearing my um i got vaccinated 
button that I got when I got vaccinated. Did you get a button or a sticker when you got vaccinated? I got no, I didn't get anything. <gasps> the injustice. The I know. I was very upset about it. I was very <laughs> upset. My mom didn't get one either. And I said that when I go get my second dose, I will try to snag her button. I think that's so unfair. The best part about voting yeah. and getting your flu vaccine is getting a fun sticker. So I think, yeah, <laughs> I love my right? button. <laughs> like, I totally wanted a button. I got, okay, sit over here for 15 minutes and then go home. And I was like, oh, that's it? Okay. Okay. <laughs> like, cool. All right. Okay. Um, <laughs> so anticlimactic. Like you're waiting, you've yeah. been waiting for this for over a year and then it's over. And you're like, well, now, now my body's making antibodies. Like, cool. All right. Okay. I was like, that's literally all I got it was like, okay, we're done. Bye. And I was like, oh, all right. Um, um, so during this pandemic, Savannah, has there been any positive changes to your disability experience during this time or your understanding of disability during the pandemic? I mean, my personal experience being work from home and being a student, being able to take classes from home is that I realized like how valuable rest is because I've been able to rest a lot more and I, I am so much more productive being able to be home and while I don't know if this will this will happen I'm sure some companies will do this where well whereas some won't I hope that more organizations will keep the idea open of um, work from home when people want to I don't like work from home like I will be honest and say that I hate having meetings online. I hate when I need to teach something, how hard it is to teach online. Um, there, there's a lack of just uh, connection with coworkers, with fellow students, with the faculty. It is really hard, but I there has been so much value to just like my, my daily pain level and my fatigue. And like, you know, if I have a migraine, instead of having to like go home and cancel my entire day, I can take some meds and lay down for an hour and then get back up and keep working um so I, I hope that my hope is that being able to have an option where you know people can spend more days at home than they were ever before I hope that I hope that happens but um I don't know I think as far as my understanding of disability is I'm just so much more aware of the complications of inequity and how like things aren't as black and white as I always saw it as you know I I, I tend I always have seen like a lack of accessibility with businesses um, and apartment buildings and houses as discrimination. I, I've always seen that as discrimination because if it was, if you were telling someone of a certain race or a certain gender that they couldn't enter a building, everyone would agree that that's discrimination. But if you don't put a ramp, people don't agree, but it is, you are barring certain people from your place of business. But there are other things, especially with health and equity that are so much more complicated than that. And I, I think, it's kind of our like duty in public health to recognize how complicated the stuff is and figure out how to piece it apart. We have this um, theory um, of looking upstream. Um, so you've got like a, a, a waterfall going into a river and you see people have fallen in and they're drowning. And what people like to do, the interventions that happen most often is we just pull people out and we save them. But we don't bother to climb up the hill to look at why <laughs> why people are drowning in the first place. We don't look at the top of the waterfall and find out how people are falling. And th this just highlights like, you know, black people, people who are disabled, indigenous people, those are the people that are facing the brunt of the pandemic. 
but we should have been looking at the, these inequities existed before the pandemic. The pandemic just highlighted them. And yeah. so we have to, we have to be looking upstream. We have to be finding these solutions that are, are longer than just like giving people a vaccine because there's going to be another, there's going to be another virus. I mean, I remember swine flu. I remember bird flu. I remember SARS. I, you know, I was much younger and didn't even know what public health was, but I remember that those things are going to happen again. We, it may not, I'm, Can, I'm hoping it never happens to this magnitude in our lifetimes, but we don't know. And yeah, we could I mean, have another virus that happens before this one's over. We don't know. And so we, we, we can't almost be- did. I was reading something last year that said like, when this just kicked off, there was a, there was a, another version of swine flu that was going to be like extra worse. And it was like, yep the news cycle kind of died out about that but for a minute there they were like oh yeah there's gonna be a swine flu on top of on top of COVID and we were all of us were just like oh fuck what does this mean oh no I know and then we were worried that that was gonna happen with the flu that we would have what we were calling a twindemic with if people were not getting vaccinated with the flu then people were gonna get the flu and COVID and it would just be this like whole disaster we also don't know how the virus is gonna mutate this virus is very smart um just for like a little virology lesson, a virus that can spread a lot, but doesn't kill most people is like the best, most efficient, smartest virus. And SARS-CoV-2 is brilliant at that. And as it continues to mutate and become more transmissible, but le- but not um, more deadly, it's getting even better. And we don't know where that's going to go. We hope that it's going to be something that we can curtail, but we just don't know. And it, like this just shows that like we have to prepare beforehand we have to know kind of like what to do with the disabled beforehand we can't decide that right now because we are we are too late and i i just hope that you know we we've seen a huge rise in people applying for public health programs i hope that in the application pool it's queer people and people of color and disabled people because like we we need us in that game because the, the, the people who are cis and, het and white and not disabled, they're not, they're not as aware as we are. I, they will be. I think they're getting there, but they're just not as aware as we are. Yeah, 100%. Totally agree. I mean, I just think, like, again, so much I could unpack. Do we have three more hours to go through everything you just said? <laughs> There's, there's a lot there. someday someday when we're all all opened up and i can go back to can and look at drinks and we'll talk about this <laughs> yes I'm, and we should record that episode too i would love that let's get, <laughs> let's get drunk and talk about the virology of covid19 here for it, yes um, sounds like a date <laughs> um uh what so why do you think as somebody who works in public health why do you think it's important for people who are not disabled to stay home and to protect disabled people and themselves and can you speak on that from a public health standpoint i mean it, it's hard to like not do it from the personal standpoint because you know it, it or do it from like, all the standpoints me, it's whatever. so simple it's like because there are people who are, are important who are not you right like that that's like what's been screaming in my head but i think you know i i a couple months ago listened to a podcast um about instances of the plague and how the aftermath of the plague was almost worse because you're dealing with mass grieving. You're dealing with large sections of the population who no longer existed anymore. And so you didn't have people necessarily in those sectors of, of work, like people in agriculture and things like that, 
to fulfill roles that needed to be fulfilled and so like from that standpoint like having a loss of life is expensive and it, it, it's messy and it's complicated and you know for our ability to like function as a society we we can't like be letting this happen where hundreds of thousands of people are not going to be in the population at the end of the pandemic and especially the mass grieving like that in history with the plague we we have we know that mass grieving made society take so much longer to, to get back to bounce back because that's something that's hard for people to deal with and when it's everyone grieving when everyone don't either knew someone who died or knows someone who knows someone who died that is something that really affects the society so i think and this is something that i think i've been saying a lot is that we're not thinking post-pandemic yet and so we need to be thinking when we we're talking about people that need to stay home like we need to also think about post-pandemic like what kind of world do we want to have what kind of world can we have that will function if we stay home versus we don't stay home and i i, I wonder you know we are almost we are literally almost at six hundred thousand people dead in the u.s we are coming up wow. on that number I didn't. This country has never experienced that. We don't know what that massive loss of life is, and it's not just senior citizens who are retirees. It was people in all sectors of the workforce. It is people of all different ages and creeds. Like in in Toronto, Canada, right now, it is it is people in there in my age, thirty five, forty, you know, forty and younger. Yep. It's you know I. We're not at the death scale that you guys are at yet, thank God. But it's, you know, who's to say we, who's to say we couldn't get there? And like, like I think you know we talk about grief. I think we also have to talk about mass disability grief. The things that disabled people and chronic and chronically ill people will be going through, will they'll be going they'll be going through the the ramifications of this in grief for years to come. And no one knows how to talk about disability grief because it's hard and it's full of ableism and full of stuff. And our communities will be, will take so much longer to bounce back, not just everybody, but especially the disabled community yeah. because we've lost so many of our own. And, and, and to that point, like we, you know, COVID does not just cause death. You don't either, it, like there are more than the two options of you live or you die. A lot of people are living, but they have, permanent cardiovascular damage they have chronic fatigue syndrome they have new new or worsening mental health conditions they have permanent lung scarring and so many things that we are yet to discover and so what i would say to people about staying home is that like that should be your greater fear is surviving but with these things that may make it impossible for you to ever work again or to take care of your family or yourself um and I even recently heard about someone who died by suicide because of the symptoms that he was dealing with for almost an entire year from COVID. Like that, that that's a real thing that is going to happen to more and more people. And then at a population standpoint and an economic standpoint, having more disabled people is going to cost more. And that's a problem too. If you take more, that, those are more people we're taking out of the workforce, right? And like, that's something that we're not talking about at all when we're talking about the pandemic. We're only talking about deaths. And that, that's crazy to me. Like my, my fear is not dying. My fear is having like chronic fatigue syndrome. As someone who's dealt with fatigue from different illnesses and different chronic conditions, that scares me a lot. And 
like why are you not scared of that like why are you literally going outside maskless hanging out with people why are you not scared of what the rest of your life could be like that because that's what scares me say that one more time just for the people to hear it won't because i think it's really really (laughs) important can you say it again yeah i just i i I think that we need we need to be talking about all of the effects that covid can leave behind if you if you if you do live because we don't we don't know and actually i remember reading an article that said if you had if you tested positive for covid and you're an athlete whether or not you had any symptoms you need to have a, a cardio workup because up to a third of people who have tested positive could have permanent cardiovascular damage and that's scary and that's something that we only newly know like we didn't know that a year ago and what are we going to know in six months <laughs> like all yeah. these kids that were carriers that had the virus but had no symptoms what if they have permanent neurological damage like there are a lot of things that give, show no signs immediately in children but they cause permanent neurological damage, a lot of contaminants, um, exposure to lead, things like that. We, that doesn't show up for years. And so like, then what happens to all these kids who, you know, we didn't know, like, but there are just so many unknowns. And so I guess I think, you know, my, my um, like way of living has always been, if we don't know, we need to be more prepared and more cautious. But I think yeah. a lot of people are like, well, we don't know. So we're just going to keep living our lives until we do know. And that is just like, as someone who's never like, been on her life that way, that like blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you're right because as disabled people, we have to plan everything to the T. Most of us, um, yep. and you know, you know, you're you're talking about kids and and how COVID could affect the next generation. I then thought immediately of like COVID toes. I'm like, why are we talking more about that? And what? Yeah. Like, I mean, or like, like some people haven't retained their sense of. uh, smell or uh, taste that would be devastating to me as someone who loves to cook and loves to eat the idea of losing my (laughs) sense of taste would really be life-changing and I think people are like think of it as not that big of a deal but actually for some people that can be devastating I know someone who doesn't have a sense of taste from for other reasons and that is that's huge that's losing one of your senses is huge that is life-changing I would and be, why is, why does that not scare people like <laughs> yeah yeah I would be like like the listeners of the show have heard me say multiple times many times I've lost the ability to pee like I've lost the ability to do I've, I've lost sensory stuff and it's hard it's really hard yeah it's really really tough and so like if I lost my sense of taste I also love to eat that's why I'm a bear in a chair I love to eat everything all the time <laughs> um and so if I lost one of those, it would suck. Totally suck. Yeah, it would be life-changing. It would like be something that you would never be able to replace and never really fully bounce back from. I mean, it's not something that would necessarily shorten your life expectancy or cause you to have additional therapies, but it's not something that you would ever be able to ignore. And that, you know, yeah. I think we also, you know, I don't, you know, being disabled and having chronic conditions is not a death sentence. But it's also not like a walk in the park, you know. We we should be able to say that like yes, it's not a death sentence, but it also sucks. And like I don't want yeah. people to have all these sucky things, right? <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, now we're getting into like my feelings on disability justice work and how it's so on the internet and on Twitter. And this is a total tangent that I'm gonna go off on, but whatever. It's on the internet and on Twitter. It's so black and white, and yep. in real life, it's not. And it's just like I wish we could get into the nuances of that when we talk about this stuff because you're right 
being chronically ill and being disabled is not a death sentence and it shouldn't be seen that way. But at the same time, we also need a place to talk about how fucking hard it is sometimes and how it's shit and how it sucks and how I hate it. Yeah. And like when, when the, the pandemic was declared and then they canceled in-person instruction, everything in person was canceled. Like I felt a lot of guilt that I shouldn't have felt for like being upset that my life was turned upside down and certain opportunities that I was like once in a lifetime opportunities were now not going to happen. And so I've been saying from the beginning that we need to talk about how much it sucks. We need to recognize that our lives were, were rocked. And even if like you didn't have COVID and someone else that you know didn't have COVID, like you are still affected. You are still, we, we have, have perpetually been in this, this state of trauma. We're a prolonged trauma. We're all experiencing it because our lives have been disrupted because we, even if we don't know anyone who's died or had adverse effects, we know that hundreds of thousands of people have. We like that grief is is on us. Like it sucks. We need to talk about that. We need to have a space to talk about how disruptive this has been, because I think there's a lot of like shame and guilt around that. Like the the beginning of the pandemic, there are all these like live laugh love people that were like oh you can stay home and learn a new skill and I was thinking like actually I'm gonna stay home and just take care of myself (laughs) (laughs) you know because that's all I can manage I can't manage like learning how to to write the the next great American novel yeah yeah. and that's great and I like I did I did spend some time focusing on like my artistic endeavors and that was great but I also spent and continue to spend time just taking care of myself because we are all on this prolonged state of trauma that no end is in sight and we don't know how we're gonna like walk away from it when it, it does end like it, you know if it you know if it does end like you know yeah. speaking of trauma and things that I've missed it's been 16 months since another human beings touched me that isn't my attendant care worker and it's like yeah. like and I meant that from like an intimate standpoint so like I haven't had sex with anybody in the last year and a half which for me has been almost traumatic because like you you don't you can't you just can't and it's like well great what do I do now I know I know I I think you know something that I thought about towards the beginning of the pandemic too is like you may rely on your your carer but a lot of people have carers that do things that like they could technically live without and so I know that there are disabled people everywhere who had to make that decision of risk can I live without these services to reduce my risk of exposure or do I have to accept that risk and keep them coming into my home and that like no one should have to face that like that is crazy to me that some people have to face that I know of someone that who had um, a care attendant come for a little bit of time for their parent who had surgery and they're one of the attendants that came like was not they found out that they were like not masking and not following rules and you don't know like they could even lie and tell you that they're following the rules you don't know that they've been careful and like that fear I mean I couldn't imagine that fear of like having every anytime someone has had to come into this house in in the last year like yes we've been masked and distanced but like I always think about it like could that could this be the one time like we are being like, so and I, I've, I've been lucky in the last year we had 11 people that work where I live get COVID and I just was lucky enough to not yeah. ever be kind of with them when, when they were in like an infectious state but oh my goodness the fear of like oh no so like the other day when I got vaccinated 
I, I breathe a little sigh of relief. Like now they can at least come and, and take care of me and I can feel a little bit better. Yeah. I, I went to, I had to go to the ER at the end of July last year. And like, there's another risk analysis that we have to do that we shouldn't have to do because I waited like a week longer than I should have. Um, and it really ended up not being that big of a deal, but you know, I, I, I was trying to think like, is it worth it? Is that risk worth it? And then when I went, you know, they were being more care- way more careful than usual. They were triaging in a completely different way that was new to me. But then I had to wait in the waiting room for 45 minutes and everyone was wearing masks, but I just, I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking about like, am I, am I, am I sitting in a place where there's virus in the air? I could not yeah. like that thought could not leave my head. And I don't know why I, like, this doesn't make any sense, but I was literally like afraid to speak up and say, I think I'm at ele- elevated risk and I don't feel comfortable sitting in this waiting room. And then when I talked to my PCP a few days later, she apologized to me and said, you shouldn't have had to go through that. You should have been able to go seek medical attention and not be so fearful. Because once I was given a room in the in the ER on one of the wards, I felt pretty safe because, you know, there was a curtain and, and all the nurses and doctors were wearing N95s and a mask on top and there were no visitors with the patients. So I felt safe there. And I like know just from my science background that N95s are really, really good at what they do. So my, I knew that my risk was pretty low in that area but being in the waiting room was terrifying and like that shouldn't be something that i had to deal with and that shouldn't be something that i know that there are people that delayed medical attention or didn't seek it at all because they were so afraid of weighing that risk and like like i said earlier we're, we're really bad at calculating risk disabled people i think are a little bit better at it because we're constantly doing that but we're still not good at yeah. it like it's still we're, we're still like especially like we're trying to think about seeking emergency medical care you know we haven't gotten labs done we don't haven't had scans yet so we don't really know what's going on so our weighing of that risk is not based on anything except the little bit of information that we know and like it's we shouldn't have to do that like that's that i think is one of the biggest injustices that people disabled or not have had to face is deciding whether or not to seek medical attention or if that's going to just put them at a greater risk like because i know what people especially people who have had cancer who got covid from being exposed at their infusion center and then like like that's crazy you can't just discontinue chemo like yeah i mean wow i couldn't imagine going like i was in the er last year too for a bowel obstruction yay mm-hmm. and i remember going there and this is in, like the middle of the pandemic thinking oh fuck like i'm gonna die here because i'm gonna yeah. get covid because i'm gonna get sick and i'm gonna someone's gonna cough on me or like something's yep. gonna happen and i'm gonna there'll be it I was fine. I ended up being fine, but still, like the the you're right. The fear. I don't think disabled people need that elevated fear right now, especially not right now. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just it can be a lot. So I have so many more questions that I wrote down, but I don't want to. I could I could sit with you for like another five more hours. <laughs> but for the for the ears of my listeners, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so <laughs> but my, my last question to you is. When all this is said and done and it's safe to be out and about again, what is the first accessible thing you're going to do? Probably get a meal with friends. Like that is something that I miss so much. Well, okay. There are two things. One is grocery shopping. I've always actually enjoyed grocery shopping when I'm alone. I love the grocery store so much. I put headphones in. I've got my list, especially where I, cause I was briefly living in Boston for about six months and then 
I was in Rhode Island visiting my mom for spring break and then the pandemic was declared and then I was able to get out of my lease. So it was this like weird situation that I kind of just like snuck out of Boston and then like all yeah. of my stuff was in storage. So I'm still li- living out of the stuff in my backpack for over a year now. So I'm in this weird situation. But when I was in Boston, I had access to these like really bougie grocery stores. So like going grocery shopping was like my once a week like joyride. So I'm excited for grocery shopping and I'm excited to go to a restaurant with friends because eating a meal with people like that's one of those simple things that we really took for granted I think that I miss so much but like the idea of sitting in a restaurant right now even though I'm vaccinated scares the hell out of me and I, I can't wait for when that's not scary and to speak on that like I think we need to give ourselves grace knowing that it, we're probably going to be scared longer than the risk exists and that's okay if you are a year from now still scared to sit in a restaurant or go to a movie theater that's okay because we're all dealing with trauma and it's, it's going to take a while. I mean, you talked earlier about the SARS, you know, remembering SARS in Toronto. And when SARS happened, we had a concert with like 50,000 people side by side together, singing songs with celebrities, like yep. unmasked together. I cannot imagine doing that now. It's like, oh. What? This is- I know. And it's funny. Cause like thinking about that in the past, like, I think that's part of why people just don't don't get how bad it is because we've had these few pandemics in, in, in recent history that everyone panicked about and then it wasn't that bad in this part of the world. So it felt like yeah. we were all big hypochondriacs and now we're, we're underestimating the risk and like that's bad, <laughs> you know? And I was saying that too. This is something that a lot that has been going on a lot on Twitter and like the epidemiology sphere is people have been talking about the things that they got wrong. And what most of us got wrong is in February and March, we were saying that people are, are, are panicking way out of proportion. They shouldn't be hoarding things. The flu is going to be way worse this year, just like it is every year. I said it. I said it. I've, I for sure said it last year. For sure. And I I remember saying it to my mom and I remember saying it to my friends. And I, and I remember being, when realizing that I was so wrong and feeling like I was uneducated, but like based on all, 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 of her, all of her past experiences, that was the right guess. It just, it, it didn't end up turning out to be true. Yeah. One last question that I had in my head a mm-hmm. few minutes ago, I didn't want to forget it because it's the worst when you like, oh, I should have <laughs> asked this. I want to ask this. Yeah, yeah. As somebody who works in public health and who's working in public health, how do you think we make those communications more accessible to the disabled community? Like what kind of language should we use when we do that? What kind of, how do we, how do we talk about this stuff and bring it to this population so that when they see public health stuff, they go, oh, I'm disabled. I should look at this. I'm included I think, here. I think it, it starts before that and figuring out who the speaker is. We know from, from research that um, people are take trust people in their community who are like them more than they do from like, you know, old white men who are experts. Like I love Dr. Fauci, <laughs> but like he doesn't speak to a lot of people because he's not relatable to a lot of people. So I think we first have to think about who's speaking. And I think that means disabled community members, maybe people that have my expertise or maybe people who um, don't have any health expertise, but they have the expertise of being disabled and being in the healthcare system, working <laughs> cuff, with cuff. People- J- Judy Human. Um, hey. <laughs> <laughs> Judy, if you're listening, I don't know. Contact my people. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, I, I think, and prominent disabled people, whether they're actors or they're activists or 
whoever. And then I think, you know, I think the, the other biggest thing is, is recognizing when we get things wrong and then saying that we got it wrong, that like yeah. our data was not correct. Our guesses were not very good in the beginning and we know more now and this is why we got it wrong. And this is why we know this now. Um, I, cause I think especially us, like, you know, even if you weren't someone that has been, um, if you're like have chronic conditions and you've never been in a clinical trial, you know that there are disabled people who have been in clinical trials that have been really harmed by medicine in 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 that sphere, and you know that a lot of disabled people are harmed by medicine just because you know bad things happen with doctors. They're ableist and they don't know the type of people that they're treating, and a lot of scary things have happened in history. And so, like we have all, even if you haven't experienced that, you know anything about disability history you know that has happened and so I think like understanding that we have a heightened skepticism for medicine and meeting people where they're at lifting people up from the disability community and letting them speak to us really important but also like I said recognizing that we got things wrong and we need to tell people that we got things wrong because that's the only way we're going to repair trust with the public is recognizing that we are faulty we've made mistakes in telling people that we made them because there is just we, there's been so little trust with public health and it's just like going farther and farther down because we keep we, we look like we're wishy-washy we look like we don't know what we're talking about because we keep changing our minds and not saying we changed our minds because we were wrong before like that that sentence is critical we could just say that i think i think that that would make all the difference Oh my God, marginalized people would be like, yes, okay, yeah. I'll listen to you now. Yeah, exactly. Because we, 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 we've heard our doctors be wrong before, we've heard nurses be wrong before, we know that we've been wrong before, and we're probably more capable of saying, <laughs> you know, because we're not worried about like credibility and creed and um, being put on a list of like most in- influential people. So we're a lot more comfortable with saying we've been wrong about things, about our own bodies I mean, or our own experiences or other people's experiences. Of- but people like me i mean public health we're, we're arrogant like we we want to be we want to be on the cutting edge we want to be the people who discovered the first vaccine or discovered the way to end the pandemic or discovered this and that like that's exciting and i i've definitely felt that excitement before and like just from like the kind of excitement of like knowing that i've been part of this this effort and research and like I know that I'm one of the, the people who got to help with this effort. Like that's exciting, but also like, that's not the point. We're not here to win awards or to be on the top 10 most influential people list. We're here to save lives and to uplift people and to fix health problems and hopefully meet pe- people where they're at. And like, but we're not, I don't know how much we're doing that. On that note, thank you so <laughs> on much. that positive note, <laughs> <laughs> No, but thank you so much for coming and talking about how public health and your experience as a disabled person with chronic illnesses has has how you've done work to mm-hmm. to discuss disability during this topsy turvy pandemic time. And thank you so much for the work you do and for wanting to chat about this. And it's been really fun, and I appreciate it. And thank you for talking about it. I think you know I, I'm sure there are people, especially like me, who not believing their houses, who just feel very alone and don't know who to talk to. I you know, I'm not in the secret disabled people like group me. I don't have a lot of disabled friends. So like knowing that this space exists where people are talking about this is, is so invaluable. And I know, I know I'm not, I'm sure I'm not the only person who, 
who feels that way when it comes to this podcast and other other spheres of of disabled people talking about the pandemic oh well thank you i mean it was just something that i i honestly when i started this series on the show i was like i'm only gonna do it for like five weeks because the pandemic will only last five weeks and then it'll be over and literally <laughs> like literally yeah. it's gone it went for 23 episodes the first season and this season of it's been like <laughs> who knows how many more i'll get out of it but it's such a interesting conversation piece to have with other disabled folks during this time yep um and so Savannah, just in case the people want to reach out to you and talk more about the sexiness of data and disability in terms of public health, how do they do that? Um, so you can find me on, on uh, Twitter. It's Savannah, so S-A-V-A-N-N-A-H, Lawrence, L-O-R-E-N-C. I have way too many letters in my name. Hopefully you'll be able to find me, but um, definitely shoot me a DM if you have any questions or want to chat um, pandemic stuff. I talk a lot about the pandemic. I'm trying to focus a lot more on equity in the next couple of weeks, posting articles about um, uh, minority communities that are most affected by the pandemic written by people who are in those communities. And I try to demystify a lot of the things that are going on in the data. So yeah, come and hang out with me on Twitter and we can talk about it. Cause yeah, there's a lot more to talk about than we've talked about here for sure. Oh, we could, you and I could have sat there for like three more hours and just like, <laughs> yeah. done it a deep dive but like I was like I was looking at the timing like we've talked so much um but it was I loved it it was so fun and it was such a necessary conversation and I also really appreciate that you're a disabled person working in public health because we don't hear about that very often so I really mm -hmm. appreciate those intersections that you bring to the show and it was great to have you thanks for having me thanks so much for being here all right, so that's it for episode three of Palsy in the Pandemic, and I want to do more of these, so if you want to come on, be sure to send me an email. But I loved sitting down and talking with Savannah and having the discussion about public health and really getting to talk with somebody who both lives with disabilities and also works in the public health sphere and can see the data that many of us with disabilities are not seeing and is doing her best to make an impact as a disabled person in that space. I felt it was really important to highlight that with her, and I definitely had a good time. Again, if you want to share your story, email us at disabilityafterdark@gmail.com, and let us know how the pandemic has played a role in your life, and we'll feature you on a Friday Palsy in the Pandemic episode. Lovely, We'd love to have you. All right. Um, I really hope you enjoyed this one. I sure did. Stay tuned tomorrow for our regular episode all about some cool stuff which i can't remember what it is but you'll um really enjoy it it's it's actually oh yes i do it's gonna be a really juicy one so enjoy and again if you want to support programs like this go to patreon.com slash disability after dark and pledge if you can or leave a review or tell your friends or do all the things to let them know about the show thank you so much for listening and um i really enjoy this so i hope you did too thanks friends bye